Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello, and welcome back to Godsplaining. I am Father Gregory Pine, joined here by the one, the only, Father Patrick Mary Briscoe. Father Patrick, how are things? Now, dang, I thought I was on with Father Jacob Bertrand today. <laughs> must have been some, some screw-up in the schedule. I'd rather talk to him. Can we get him on the phone here? I'd rather talk yeah, to him. Yeah, exactly. It'll be like talking to me, except different. Um, well, it is, different. it is different talking to you today. Um, the setting is different. I don't remember your room having a dormer like that, you know, like a kind of skylight yeah, recently thing. installed. Yeah. Actually, the, um, so I'm in Austria at the Kartausa in Gaming, Austria, at the satellite camp, well, satellite campus. I don't know if you would describe it that way, but... It's a place that is owned by the Franciscan University of Steubenville for their study abroad program. And I'm in like a roof room, but these dormers actually open. Uh, they don't open manually. They open mechanically. Uh, and I discovered nice. that because I leaned against the button and then I heard this whirring noises, this whirring noises. I got to get my, um, hold on. These were Das, noises, das whirring noise. Yeah, exactly. These is whirring dine, noises. Dine, <laughs> dine and whirring noise. And then all of a sudden, you know, my room was just open to the elements. And there's only one season in Austria. It's the rainy season. And sometimes the rain comes in solid form. But that's basically it. So this was, you know, this was bad. But I figured out how to close it. So, yes, the setting is different and very treacherous. Um, but I'm faring decently. But that's what an evasion because I asked what? you how you are. That's right. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was just going to double down on the evasion <laughs> tactic and say, uh, um, is gaming better than... Freiburg, and mm. why is it so? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. Um, so let's see, how would I make a relative comparison? So Freiburg's great because they speak French, mm -hmm. um, which is a language that I know better than not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Gaming is in Austria. Austria is in the German-speaking diaspora, he says, making up terminology. Um, and as a result of which, yeah, I've had a couple of conversations with people that began and ended this way. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me just clear my throat here. <laughs> ich spreche kein Deutsch. And they're like, ah, yes, another idiot American. <laughs> Correct. I just want coffee. So please don't make fun of me as I depart. Um, <laughs> no, they're like, oh, it's been so long since we've had one of you because of the COVID. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They kind of like grab you by both shoulders. I got yeah. one. I got one in the wild. Um, except I wouldn't be able to discern or verify whether they were saying that because it would come out not sounding like that. So yes, um, Gaming's a great place. Um, I'm celebrating mass and, you know, doing some sacraments and things for nice. the English speaking community here. So it's, uh, it's good. It's, be it's a beautiful place. And obviously it's nostalgic, not obviously, but I was here as a student and now I am still a student. <laughs> so nice. nothing has changed except the passing of time. Oh, that's great. Um, the, the exciting thing that's going on in my life is we've got, um, uh, our RCIA mass. So Bishop Evans, the auxiliary Bishop of Providence is coming to campus and we're going to baptize three students and nice. help another 11 round out their sacraments. So that's great. Um, so, so 14, um, 14 people will receive the sacraments, um, here at St. Dominic Chapel, which is great. Boom. In a lot of years, that's the awesome. program has been a lot bigger. Uh, but you know, we've all been locked in our rooms and it's been tough to meet people and stuff. 
So yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm trying I mean, not to be hard on that. Tactics. You know, I I talked a lot of trash to Father Bonaventure. You know, who like had these classes of thirty um, yeah. plus, and I was determined to do that during COVID. And the Lord said, "Nah, I'm going to give this one to Father Bonaventure. <laughs> it's not your it's not your day, Father Patrick." Yeah, I mean, okay, so faith is free, as it were, or it's something that one chooses by free will. So you can't force people to believe. You know, coerced faith is probably not a good thing. Certainly not a good thing. Okay, I'm, I'm, I should be serious about serious matters. But I wonder, you know, if in COVID tide you could incentivize faith. You know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, no groups of over five except for RCIA. And people are like, you know, sounding more attractive. You know, it's sounding Need more contact <laughs> with other humans. <laughs> Human beings. Whew. Um, okay, so that's awesome. People receiving sacraments, grace being given. Um, for this particular episode, uh, we are uh, picking up on our ongoing series of literature and fill-in-the-blank. So in past, we've talked about Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. We've talked about David Foster Wallace and Cormac McCarthy. Here, we, we tread lightly. Uh, I suppose we tread somewhat... What's the word I'm looking for? What's the word the Father Gabriel Toretta would say? Um, terrifiedly? No, never mind. Um, we, we tread somewhat cautiously on account of the fact that some of our listeners, almost certainly, will know a lot more about the subject than we do because it's a favorite of Catholics, namely uh, the literature of J.R.R. Tolkien. So, Father Patrick, set us up, set the stage when speaking or thinking about J.R.R. Tolkien, like what are the works that we're consulting, what is the thought world in which we enter, where do we go from here, where do we begin? Right. I think the I think the starting place with Tolkien um, is actually a, a kind of apology. We talk a lot of about apologetics here on the podcast. Um, it's an apology, a kind of defense for the project in general. I think you have to start there, right? Because some people, when they think of Tolkien, if they do at all, um, they think fantasy, therefore fairy tale, therefore not actually important. And Tolkien, as a, as a serious scholar, a philologist, a scholar of words, their origins and meanings, um, Tolkien, as a philologist, has a, has a deep understanding about what it means to create, what it means to make. And so for him, this, this world, which, which he has created, and we'll talk a little bit more about what he, what he thinks he does by creating, but, but this world that he makes is so elaborate and so complex and so very rich um, that, that its study is essential. So... Uh, so some people would say, you know, isn't this just a kind of escape, um, you know, a, a fancy, a, a fanciful um, way to ignore um, COVID, you know, to pretend that you can leave your 10 by 10 apartment for, you know, three minutes and enter into a world of orcs and elves and dwarves and men. Um, and that that kind of escapism is not actually helpful to human life. Um, so uh, this is not true, I don't think. Um, I think that Tolkien is doing something very, very different, and that Tolkien's works help help us not just to understand a world that he makes, which is tremendous in its own right. Um, you know, that's the that's the argument I was making um, about the complexity of his creation that it's that it's tremendous in what he has achieved in creating it, but also because reflecting on this world helps us to better know and understand ourselves. So that I think is the first defense that I would make for why read literature and why read a fantasy story? Why, why read something that comes from a section of Barnes and Noble? Um, if people still go to stores that exist in brick and mortar, uh, that comes from a section of Barnes and Noble that maybe our, we wouldn't ourselves wander through quite so readily. 
Yeah, I'm, as, you, as you speak, I'm reminded of, I don't remember exactly where it comes from, but it's, it crops up in movies and in literature. This idea that many, and I think uh, oftentimes the dictum goes, uh, that politicians lie to obscure the truth and that um, writers, whether it be poets or novelists or whomever, uh, they lie so as to tell the truth or reveal the truth. And I think that, um, you know, Tolkien is, is conscious of, well, the use of words, the meaning of words, the signification of words. He certainly wouldn't use the word lie because uh, I think that he would describe his more, uh, he would describe his project more on the basis of like telling a deeper truth. Um, and he's not there just kind of escaping into mystery language the way that uh, popular apologists sometimes do. So when somebody asks you a pressing question about how the sacraments work or the nature of God, sometimes people just retreat and say, it's a mystery, which is code either for I have no idea how to explain this or yikes, I'm leaving. You know, but what he says is, yeah, there's an intelligibility to this thing. And that, that, that theme that you brought up, this idea of escape, that it's not an escape from, but it's an escape into. Um, it's the type of thing, the, it's the type of story that actually... Um, bears urgently immediately upon human life because, well, uh, because it shows us how it is lived, how it ought to be lived, not in like a morality type tropey way, but in the sense that uh, it enriches or enlivens our humanity so that we can engage it, so that we can live it uh, more profoundly. So um, may maybe just to talk a little bit about genre, um, Tolkien has this famous, uh, this famous essay on fairy stories. And there, he does a little bit of work just to distinguish, okay, what are we talking about when we talk about myth? What are we talking about when we talk about fantasy? What are we talking about when we talk about fairy stories? Um, so maybe we could talk along those lines just a little bit. Uh, what do you think is most important for the listener? What do you think is most helpful for getting into the mindset? Right. Um, I, I, I love Tolkien's claim that uh, mythology is not a disease. <laughs> he, he says this very clearly. This is one of his things, um, that, that myth actually is a way of presenting um, deeper truths even. So so for him, myth is not a lie. Myth is not a deceit. Um, you know, so some people will say, I, I can't read this kind of thing to my, my child because it's not it's not real. It's not about the world. It's about it's about something else. But the for Tolkien, the myth, the fairy story tells truths in in a, in such a deep and profound way that human beings can run to them, right? So um, in in this project of of myth telling or myth making for Tolkien is is a kind of recovery. It's a sense of understanding us not just as we are, but as we were meant to be, which is which is a very different thing. Um, you know, as we are is sort of the project of the philosopher, but as we were meant to be um, o opens up a, a a different a different project, and there's there's a different premise there. So this idea that there's this idea that through myth through storytelling we re we recover. The, the ideal, we recover something very deep about who we are. I, I think that's that's something really important to understand that Tolkien is doing when he's talking about myth and, and fairy story. So again, as you speak, I'm I'm thinking, all right, so we've rehearsed in past episodes before the, the difference between Tolkien and Lewis about the place mm -hmm. of allegory. Right. So for those who've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know that, that Lewis can be very allegorical, especially on account of the fact that these stories are geared towards children. And so in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the parallels between the, the life uh, of Narnia and then the life of the Gospels is very close. Right, the magic type. Jesus lion. <laughs> exactly. Um, he is uh, terrible and good. Right, so with Tolkien, you don't have the same understanding of allegory. What you have is something 
that's more, I guess, historical and more conceptual. So maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, how do, how do words work? How does history work in the worlds that he creates? Because I remember, you know, the first time, the only time that I read The Lord of the Rings, I remember just getting completely lost in the appendices, which is a nerdy right. thing to say. Um, but, you know, you open that book. There's a preface there from Christopher Tolkien. He says the main complaint that's leveled against The Lord of the Rings is it's too short. And then you, you're like, wait, I'm holding like a thousand page book right now. This is cheeky nonsense. And then you start reading it and you're like, I need more. I want more. I can't help but have more. And then you're just lost in the appendix and you're like, yeah, but what about the first age of Middle Earth? And tell me more about, you know, yada, yada, and thus and such. So, so, okay, he's got, he's got this, this art, uh, this, this act, which he calls sub-creation um, as a fantasticist, to make up a noun, or as a myth maker as one who is in the, the, the habit of composing fairy stories, but he does it in a very humane way, right? So he's got these elements right. of word and of history. So what, what, what's, what's at stake there? What's going on? So for Tolkien, um, the, the imagination is a human faculty and it has to be engaged. And this is, this is perhaps one of the principal reasons we might argue that for Tolkien, there's not a, there's not a great divorce, haha, <laughs> Lewis pun. And um, there's not a great divorce between the imagination and the real world. You know, and this this is this is the argument that people who dismiss fantasy literature make. They say, "Oh, this has no bearing." But for Tolkien, the imagination, as one of man's highest faculties, um, and having been received for for Tolkien as a, as a good Catholic, believing this faculty had been to have been given us by God, for Tolkien, the imagination um, allows us this imitation of God as Creator. That is so. Um, that is such an incredible thing, and so approximates the work of God that it can only be called for Him subcreation. So subcreation, this work of making according to the imagination, is actually an imitation of God's great work, and for this, for this reason, God's greatest work of, of creation. Um, well, we could say redemption, right? Um, even better than what He first made. All right, uh, get to that before Father Gregory pounces on me. But but um, <laughs> but this idea, this idea of subcreation. Um, then is is an imitation of the work that God has done, and it is for that reason so very rich. And I think there, so when I think of creation, I think of b bewildering variety. He stumbles over the first, you know, plosive syllable. Yeah, bewildering yeah, yeah. variety. There's so much right. to it, and it's almost as if God is showing off. Obviously, God doesn't show off, but we can only take in so much with within the limitations of our our understanding, within the limitations of our earthly life. You think about the fact. Um, you know, Father Nicanor Ostriaco makes this point when he describes evolution. He says, God, God doesn't only fill the created universe in this one time. He fills it throughout all of time. So you see his creativity as this kind of ongoing phenomenon, which is just so diverse that it, it boggles the mind. Um, and, and you get that impression, too, with Tolkien because, okay, so people write stories in all different kinds of ways. Uh, the way that C.S. Lewis described Narnia is he had an image in his mind of a fawn holding an umbrella underneath a lamppost, and from there began the Chronicles of Narnia. So for him, it started with a character. Some people start with a right. plot. Some people right. start with a theme. Certainly Chesterton starts with themes and then puts those themes on human-like stilts and then just trots them through. Um, but with Tolkien, it's like he lives there, right? He, he is a creator by nature, by bent, by disposition. And there's so much more under the surface than you have expressed. You know, for every you know, dwarvish rune that, that actually makes it to the page of the Lord of the Rings. He's got like, he's got like tens and scores and, you know, he's got lots more where they came from, but he yeah, doesn't that's express right. them all. It's kind of a discovery. 
Um, and, you know, the whole project, as listeners may or may not know, the whole project of the Lord of the Rings was to create a kind of pre-mythic history of England. Um, you know, it's the, it's the world, it's the world that Tolkien knows and loves. Um, and, and it's a, a kind of pre-Christian reading of, of what this thing is, you know, and it's heavily impacted by the experience of his life, um, as having fought in the great, uh, in the great war, um, uh, his understanding of friendship, the great friendship he had with C.S. Lewis, um, his, his love for his beloved wife and his family, um, his concerns about the alienation of these goods, uh, of, of, of religion and family life caused by, you know, the, the, the rise of industrialization and, and so on and so forth, right? So, so you have all this kind of cast into, cast into this novel and then set back aeons and aeons, you know, before uh, the modern world. Um, so in that sense, it's a kind of discovery of things, right? Um, and again, you know, ju just, just to drive home this point for Tolkien, um, it, it relies on it relies on reason. Um, and for this way, we can, for this sense, we can we can use scientific language like discovery to talk about his mode of creating, um, because uh, it is it is again this human faculty, this gift which Tolkien engages that that he thinks allows him to do this. Um, you know, so he likes Tolkien looks to someone like Lewis Carroll that makes all these nonsensical jokes in his writing and says, well, he can only do that because of logic, because of reason. And so similarly, this, this is who I am as a creator, as an author. Okay, so we are, we're set up well um, for maybe exploring a couple of those themes, a couple of our favorite themes. But before we do that, let's take a quick break, and then we'll catch you on the other side of it. You are listening to Godsplaining. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes, shop our store, and donate to our podcast. All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support. So here we are, back on Godsplaining. We haven't gone anywhere because why would we? There's no reason to. Um, but uh, we've been talking in, in general terms about J.R.R. Tolkien, his thought world, his creative disposition when it when it comes to you know writing these stories that we are so delighted to have in hand. Um, but Father Patrick, at the end of that first half, you describe some of these themes that come up uh, throughout the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit or the Silmarillion. Maybe we could pick out one or two or three faves and just give um, yeah some some impressions on on things of of J.R.R. Tolkien's peculiar insights. So. Where do you think? Where do you think we should start? Yeah, that's great. I'd like to dive into. I'd like to dive into creation. Here, I'm going to be bold and say we can talk about all these things. So I'm going to announce them, and then we have to do it, Father Gregory. So ready? <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about creation. I want to talk about evil and doom, and I want to talk about um, the fight for the good, um, the, the response mm. to evil. And I, I think these are. I think these are three of the greatest themes of Tolkien. And this is why I think this is one of the reasons why I think the Lord of the Rings is um, one of, if not the very greatest story of all time. Um, so, so first with, with creation, right? Um, Tolkien, any reader, any, any, anyone that opens Tolkien um, is transported so easily into another world because of the love he has for all of its creatures, for, for his landscapes, um, for his, to use the language of Catholic social teaching, his preferential option for nature. <laughs> it's so remarkable. He just fills this universe, this world with, majestic scenes with rivers and valleys and hills and mountains and um, plains and uh, the contrast of all these different parts 
allows one uh, to see something that is just as vibrant as what, what God first made. So in the age of the, the, the age of the, the Laudato Sea Church, right? I think it's easy for us to move from our love of nature to Tolkien's love of nature, right? Um, I, I think it's, I think it's totally compatible with, with something, um, our, our attentive care for creation that, that, that is just in the atmosphere right now. It's something we're talking about considering, um, as a church. Uh, and so, uh, so I, I think that um, I think that Tolkien's presentation of the world as something that has to be cared for, has to be loved, is just immediately convertible into our sense of stewardship and and delight, right? Um, yeah, I mean, um, I think where's my mind wander? So I think back to the Silmarillion and the, the beginning of the Silmarillion. You know how I guess it's Christopher edited it after his father's death, where he had these you know substantial fragments that had never been incorporated into a complete work. And then he put them in something like an order and then sent them out. Uh, but the, the beginning is the Valaquinta, the story of the creation of, you know, Tolkien's world mm -hmm. and there, right. So you describe the beauty, his insight into nature and then the love that he exhibits for it. Uh, but the fact that all of this is underwritten by purpose, um, but a purpose that is beautiful. So a kind of beautiful purposivity underwrites nature because he has it expressed, not unlike the way that um, Lewis expresses it in The Magician's Nephew, as the fruit of a song. And uh, that song, you know, by these kind of elemental spirits, again, somewhat like the El Dilla of, um, uh, of Lewis's Space Trilogy, he has these elemental spirits kind of sing creation into being um, with, with this note of conservation you know, su suggesting that the, that the very existence of those things depends upon the sustenance of the song. And even as a discordant note is introduced by that fell spirit, who is that Morgoth, I guess, uh, you know, like the, 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 the elemental spirits are able to reorchestrate their song so as to incorporate it, which is a very beautiful way by which to account for the presence of evil while maintaining this affirmation that creation is good and that creation is good in a way that's inventive. Uh, that's ongoingly creative uh, in a way that cannot be overcome by evil, uh, but only ever permits evil so that it can draw it into something that's more rich, that's more textured, that's more delightful, in fact. Um, so, yeah, this idea that, you know, you have these you have these observations about the beauty of creation and it's underwritten by this kind of creative purposivity, uh, which, yeah, I mean, that comes out in a variety of spots in uh, in his works. I don't know if you have a favorite. Yeah, I think one one place to see this right is with uh, the the objective best character in the Lord of the Rings, which is Tom Bombadil. Um, no one is allowed to say otherwise. This is the official uh, opinion of God's planning. The best character <laughs> of Tolkien is Tom Bombadil. And some of you don't know who Tom Bombadil is because Peter Jackson is a terrible person and <laughs> edited him out of the movie trilogy. So you've never heard of Tom Bombadil, but um, I shouldn't be making moral <laughs> judgments about Peter Jackson's soul, but I think it was a terrible artistic decision to uh, exclude this wonderful character because Tom Bombadil is the perfect foil for Sauron for evil. Um, you know, whereas whereas Sauron wants to be the Dark Lord and have dominion over things, Tom Bombadil calls himself the master and he's the steward of creation. Uh, Sauron wants to use the Ring to control others, and Tom Bombadil doesn't even see it. He he just looks <laughs> right through it. It has no effect on him at all. And, um, and and this is more than just a, a contrast of good and evil. It's a it's a showing of an approach to to, to life and to creation. Um, so it, 
you know, Bombadil just lives to care for the old forest. There's no agenda. There's no plan. Um, and, and that this is what it means to, to allow things to thrive in freedom. And so, so for, for these many reasons, Bombadil gives us a sense of, of, of what God is like and how his providence operates. Um, but um, I, I think Bombadil, but, you know, his, his house in the middle of the forest is a refuge. He offers hospitality to, uh, to travelers in, in a ready way and cares for them. The image of, of rain and sustenance there in the, in the place. Um, for, for these and many reasons, um, Bombadil really, really is the peak of uh, Tolkien's creative work. Maybe Peter Jackson purposefully omitted Tom Bombadil in a spirit of apophaticism, you know, so he didn't mm -hmm. want to image the unimageable God, or he realized as a, as a kind of sign of artistic modesty that, you know, given what he did with Faramir, that, that he couldn't bear to ruin <laughs> another character. <laughs> Peter Jackson redeemed, all right. <laughs> Good, I like it. Okay, so to speak of Tom Bombadil as one innocent of evil and therefore, mm -hmm. you know, untempted as it were, or playful in a way that's like, cosmically raucous. Let's transition then more into this conversation about evil and say. So evil asserts itself very violently, very terribly throughout the course of the Lord of the Rings and in a special way. You know, it's just like, oh gosh, as you get closer to um, you know, Mordor, as you pass through Mordor, you just feel it as a weight. And even even Tolkien's prose reflect that. They get um, what's the word I'm looking for? More lugubrious. They get thicker. They get ploddinger. I'm just making stuff up at this point. But he, he makes you struggle as the characters themselves struggle through uh, the weight, the burden of evil. So what are, what are some ways in which Tol Tolkien is not necessarily teaching us about evil, but portraying evil in a way uh, that, that touches our humanity? Yeah, that's right. I think one of, the, one of the fundamental things that Tolkien manages to capture is the sense of impending doom that evil can cause, <laughs> right? And... Uh, that's part of the reason why the COVID-19 crisis has been so terrible, because in many experiences of life, we're able to distance ourselves um, from evil and its effects. But there's no running from the pandemic. It has touched everyone's life. And, you know, even even though we're talking with hope about vaccines and this kind of thing, we, we, we know that our world has been changed by it. Um, and so we're asking questions like, will it ever end? What, what, what will come back? Um, and this, this is real. This is the sense of doom that that, that Tolkien captures, and uh, so so we we have that in a kind of epic way. The darkness that Tolkien is able to portray is very real. It's not a fanciful thing. Um, and one of the reasons why it's so real is that Tolkien understands that evil is ultimately self-consuming, and he portrays this uh, very clearly in the character of Gollum, right, who becomes obsessed with the Ring. Um, with the one ring and he can't abide a life without it and in the end um, as listeners know in the end Gollum is the the cause of his own destruction trying to pursue the ring and eventually tumbles himself in it uh, you know with it into Mount Doom um, to the fires below we're the end we're, you know we're the cause of our own end uh, in, in Christian life right whether whether we go to heaven or to hell is is purely our pure, purely our work, you know, our collaboration with God's grace. If we don't attain to the kingdom, it's our fault, not God's, um, because we've allowed ourselves to be to be consumed and to, and totally self possessed, and we've made no room for God in our lives. Um, and that's what the ring does. It just it just collapses Gollum's universe unto himself, and it's a kind it's an undoing, a direct opposite to the work of creation that Tolkien has done, which is so which is so outward, the the kind of um, 
passing on to an expansive vision of life, whereas, whereas evil, again, is, is about domination and, and being consumed, ultimately, you know, by, by one's own self. It's, it's interesting, too, like, you know, we talk about dread um, or doom, as it were, or an impending sense of uh, imminent Disaster. collapse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating how he's able to convey that with such power and with such force while maintaining, um, while maintaining a kind of hope. But I think here of a comment made by Chesterton with respect to progress, he says, you know, at his time and certainly, you know, like in the, in the time, uh, you know, right before the, the composition of this work, uh, there was a lot of hope, but it was a false hope, you know, a kind of hope in technological progress or a hope in the um, improving a state of man on earth, as it were. But when cut off from the true or genuine sources of hope, it, it sowed within itself, you know, the seeds of its destruction. And so, you know, Chester remarked, there, there's no intrinsic principle of evolution in mankind. There's only an intrinsic principle of devolution, which is original sin. The only thing that we can count on is for evil to multiply. And if we are to claim anything back from that devolution, it will be at the, at the price of great struggle. Everything that we have, he says, has been saved from a wreck. And you get that uh, Tolkien, in Tolkien. You know, Tolkien conveys that with great power, with great force. Um, but but in, in a way that in, like kind of breathes into your, you know, breathes into your spirit or fills your sails with a true hope because it, it accurately describes reality. Reality is terrible. It's awful. I mean, things right, out there right. are bad, you know, but it's not unto death. Right, or it's not unto destruction, or it's not unto um, a whole or complete collapse. The only tragedy, you know, Leon Blois repeated apparently, uh, is not to have become a saint. But that still remains possible while we yet have life within us and while God continues to offer us his grace. Speaking of which, grace is a great weapon in the fight against evil. And you said that we were going to end there uh, as, as our last theme. So what, uh, what do you think Tolkien has to teach us about this battle? Well, I think that um, for, for all that we've talked about the reality of darkness that Tolkien manages to capture, so too does he capture the ultimate defeat of evil. And so Tolkien creates a word for this, our listeners may know it, um, called eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. And so he takes the word catastrophe and he adds um, from the Greek uh, a prefix meaning good. So eu, catastrophe, eucatastrophe. And it means that kind of final salvation when it looks like all is lost that brings ultimate joy and happiness. So as a, as a Catholic Christian, for Tolkien, the ultimate eucatastrophe is the defeat of sin by the reconciling act of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection on the cross. Okay, and Tolkien says that this is the greatest truth about the world, the greatest truth about humanity, the greatest truth of our relationship with God. And then he puts that into the fairy story and says, this is why the fairy story is so good. <laughs> because the myth... The myth captures and imitates this marvelous thing that God has done. Um, so the Lord of the Rings is a eucatastrophe, that happy ending, that good catastrophe, that final consolation. Um, and uh, Tolkien does this actually in all of his stories. It happens in um, The Hobbit as well. For another example, when the eagles come, when it looks like um, Bilbo Baggins and the dwarves are lost, the eagles come and pick them up and save them um, from, from that fire in the last battle. Um, but in The Lord of the Rings... Um, the, the great eucatastrophe, the, the great final ending, is um, the destruction of the ring and the saving of the army at the gate of Mordor. Um, so you have this like happy calamity. Okay, so despite the looming evil and the way the powers of darkness are set, quarreling against each other, um, Tolkien provides um, all these all these wonderful weapons against it. So we see the great story of friendship, uh, particularly amongst 
the members of um, the members of the quest, right? When the fellowship is formed, and um, we see, sadly, some of those relationships not last. Um, Boromir um, is the is the great example of that. Um, but but we see the strength of real friendship in the hobbits, in their faithfulness to each other, or in Gimli and Legolas. Um, so so friendship, and we talk about friendship a lot here on God's planning, and and it's true. Because this is this is the way to fight evil, to to make good friends, to be friends with each other, and to stand um, to to stand in the phalanx, you know, uh, in the trench um, with with your friends, uh, warring. And uh, so so Tolkien understands that one of the greatest weapons against evil is the joy of friendship. Yeah, and those friends. I mean, I think the thing that's so striking is that those friends are ordinary, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of those friends fail in very significant ways, and you can think about. Uh, the final efforts of Frodo and Sam. Um, Sam, who proves somewhat unmerciful to uh, to Gollum, although it seems justified at the time. And then Frodo, who whose final act is a kind of failure, uh, but a failure that happens under the providence of God. And yet they're able to cover each other, as it were, in the mercy which friendship extends to the other and then to kind of be born on together. And that's, I mean, it's a powerful thing that you don't go to God alone. Um, that's not to say that you don't have to be a whole person, right? Each of them is encouraged to and learns to live in virtue throughout the course of the story or kind of comes into possession of his or her full identity. Specific, you know, that's like most true in the case of Aragorn. or Aragorn. Um, but that, uh, you know, together, by virtue of what, what kind of um, propels them or gives them impetus uh, and by, by the virtue at work in each, they're able to accomplish they're able to succeed uh, in modest and in, in grand ways both. So, yeah, I think that that gives us a sense of the purposefulness of our own strivings because, uh, on, I, I mean, on the one hand, you don't really know the purposefulness until you see it in the, uh, in the full setting, as it were, until you see it in the, in the grand scheme of things. But you can also have a kind of, um, a kind of sense of that along the way. Uh, provided that you have bread for the journey, you know, whether it be Alembus mm. or the Eucharist. <laughs> nice. I see what you did there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, all right. So final thoughts, anything, anything else uh, as a kind of commendation or yeah, uh, so last word? For those of you who are wondering, um, uh, Franciscans are the wizard Radagast the Brown, Dominicans are Gandalf the White, and Jesuits are Sauron. <laughs> savage real savage okay we could just clear that up once and for all you know part of the part of the work of this podcast is to clarify the important pressing questions of life Um, and here we have rendered you know as magisteris uh our definitive judgment oh gosh wow okay such such savagery with which to conclude um here i am at the franciscan university you know i'm just just gonna mildly Radagast is great, you know. Sled pulled by rabbits. Who doesn't want that? Everyone <laughs> likes that. All right. Well, um, listeners, thanks for thanks for listening to this episode. We asked that you would like it, that you would share it, that you would leave a comment, and that you would, yeah, maybe send it to a friend as a fourth week of Easter gift, uh, because everyone needs a fourth week of Easter gift. <laughs> what would you do without a fourth week of Easter gift? Um, 
please do uh, yeah, check out godsplanning.org and the resources that we have there. Thanks so much for your support of the podcast. Thanks so much for your prayers. Know that we are praying for you. One final announcement is uh, there's still spots, a couple of spots, uh, on the retreat that's to be held July 23rd through 25th for those between the ages of 21 and 33. Again, it's in Huntington, New York, um, and it'll, it'll look like a retreat. Uh, and uh, the five of us will be present, uh, as will Katie Parker, who does the, the tech stuff, so helping us to make it good. Make it great. Let me get that right. Uh, so we look forward to seeing you there if you're able. If not, please do uh, pray, for, pray for us for that retreat. Pray for those who attend, that it might be spiritually fruitful and we can deepen the bonds of friendship uh, that we form over the course of, uh, of our weeks together. So we, too, go to God together, not unlike the characters that Tolkien portrays in beautiful fashion. So uh, thanks so much, and we will catch you next time on God's Planning. Thanks for listening to God's Planning a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.